Well, you'd think an intramural football game in college would be pretty much insignificant significant and meaningless, but it was a big deal uh, for us. Uh, we took it very, very seriously. We played intramural football by floors in our dormitory, and this was a small Christian college, 1,000 students or so, so there was you know, 8, 10, 12 teams at the most, but there was really, really stiff competition in this intramural football league, and one team had an unfair advantage, really did. They had triplets, all right? These guys, good friends of mine, Manuel, Gus, and George Simonios, played uh, high school football together. Uh, two of the three had college offers at small schools. They were really, really good football players. But on top of that, they ran the triple option, all right? In, in seminary, our, our, my professor, Howard Hendricks, said, don't use football illustrations because women check out. But that, that's, that was in Texas, all right? This is Georgia. And I know you women know football, right? So, so triple option, just to explain it uh, briefly, Manuel was the quarterback, and then his brothers were the tailbacks. And so basically they had three options. The quarterback could keep it, the quarterback could pitch it to Gus, or he could pitch it to George. And they had this thing worked out like clockwork. I mean, it was an incredible system to watch. So in the regular season, when we played against these guys, they destroyed us. They really did. It, it wasn't even close. And so we had to strategize. We had to come up with a plan to win this game. And here was our strategy. All right, ready for this? True story. Christian College, steal their playbook, all right? We stole their playbook. All right, kids, Family Worship Sunday, stealing is definitely wrong and a sin, even in football, all right? But somebody managed to get their playbook, and we still lost the game, right, fittingly. So, but, but it was definitely a lot closer than it was before. But the idea of, of winning, really, we have this idea, and the world pushes this idea. It's winning at all costs, pretty much, all right? If we can get away with it, if we can win, we're going to do whatever it takes. And that illustration from a Christian college shows you that's true for me, and it's true for most people in society, is they want to win whatever they do. Now, the same is true during Jesus' time and during our text. And the definition of winning was different among the different groups, but nevertheless, they wanted to win. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, winning for them was getting rid of Jesus. He was a threat to them. Winning for the disciples was having a place of prominence, being elevated and looked at as powerful, and that was their idea of winning. But what really matters for them and their time and for God and our time is what is God's definition of winning? What does winning look like for God? And one thing we know from this passage of Scripture, a very familiar passage of Scripture, because we oftentimes speak on it every Palm Sunday, is that winning to the crowd and the big groups of people look like Jesus at this point being put up as king and savior for the nation of Israel. But one thing we know for sure is you don't follow the crowd, and the crowd oftentimes, as Mitch pointed out, can be fickle and change quickly. And so let's look at this passage, and I hope that today, not only will you learn a couple of things you may not have known, but kids particularly, when I was a kid hearing this passage, all I remember was Jesus coming down the street, and they threw palm branches. But there's a lot more going on here, and so I hope that some of this will stick with you. And so we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. John 12, 9 through 19. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, your truth, God, I have nothing to give today apart from your word, your truth, your wisdom. 
because my truth, my wisdom, and even my motivations don't measure up apart from you. And God, I pray that as scripture says, the very oracles, the very truth, the very word of God will come forth today, God, to our hearts. And God, we know there's obstacles in this room uh, that we face, even in our own hearts, our own sleepiness, our own uh, discontent with the way things are going in our life, just the distractions that are around us, God. There's lots of reasons not to hear your word. And I pray today that your spirit will speak and we will listen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to look at verses 9 through 12, but we're actually going to start in verse 12, or 9 through 19. We're going to start in verse 12 and then come back through 9 through 11. And so John starts off and he says, the next day. Now, if you've been tracking with us, if you came last week, this would be the Sunday following Mary's anointing of Jesus at her home in Bethany, which was about two miles away from Jerusalem. So, so does it happen on a Saturday? Now, you can find various timelines. Don't catch me afterwards and say, hey, your timeline's wrong, because you can hear a lot of different opinions on some of this stuff. But th to the best that we can follow and track, and I can track from what's going on here, this happens on a Sunday that Jesus, this large crowd, verse, verse uh, 13, uh, 12, the large crowd that had come to see to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So this large crowd that had gathered and they were in a frenzy, they were excited because Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and they were there for the feast. Now the feast, as I mentioned in past weeks, the feast was the feast of Passover and this would be a Passover ceremony, celebration event like none that they had ever seen in their lifetime. This was one that is special and unique and no one had ever experienced what they were about to experience. There was this excitement in the air. There was this, this anticipation in the air. Why? The text tells us because Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And so there's this anticipation about Jesus Christ. Why? Because he had been on the scene doing miracles, doing these amazing things. But something was different now, okay? Jesus had just raised a man from the dead. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so on top of the fact that you had thousands of people already coming into Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, to celebrate this annual Passover feat, Kostenberger writes this. He says, winds of revolution whipped through the air of Palestine. Jesus, with his teaching authority and ability to capture the imagination of the masses, not least on account of his ability to heal and raise the dead, looked very much the part of the long-awaited Messiah. In order to gain and maintain power, the Romans could kill, which they did quite effectively, but how could they defeat a leader who could raise the dead? So you get this scene that's in Jerusalem. Numerous people are there. And then if you go back to verse 9, on top of the fact that people are in Jerusalem for the Passover, verse 9 says you have this large crowd of the Jews. When they learned Jesus was there back in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So get the picture. Jerusalem, two miles away from Bethany, is packed with people for the annual Passover feast and celebration. And then in Bethany, there's scores of people coming to see Lazarus and Jesus. They need to see for themselves, can Jesus really raise the dead? And so this is the scene as we now skip down to verse 17 and 18, you'll see that this crowd of people who had been with him there in Bethany when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, those eyewitnesses, 
when he raised him from the dead, and they continued to bear witness, meaning they continued to tell people what was going on. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was when they heard that he had done this sign. And so the scripture, the text makes it very, very clear that not only the crowd in Jerusalem, but you have these people who were with Jesus, were eyewitnesses to Lazarus being raised from the dead. And you had people who were showing up there because they heard about it. And so you had all these people that were just going crazy because of what Jesus had done. This was different. This was unique. This was special. This was the greatest sign that Jesus had done thus far. And there's a possibility, we don't know, even Lazarus could have made the track short journey over to Jerusalem to be part of this Passover feast. But even if he wasn't, this was the talk on the streets. This was the talk of the town. This was what everyone was talking about. People were amazed at the power that Jesus had even over death. So this was the setting as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so although the crowds are excited and they're thrilled for Jesus coming to Jerusalem was a bold and it was a dangerous statement. And both he and his disciples knew this because if you followed along again with us in John, you know the religious leaders have attempted to take his life. They have attempted to stone him. They got out of town because his life was being threatened and Jesus went and did ministry elsewhere. But he's returning now and he understands the threat that he's under. The religious leaders want him dead. And even though Jesus was receiving in this text the reception of a king coming to Jerusalem, Jesus knew what this actually meant for him. He was coming to die. And no one was going to take his life. He's coming there voluntarily to give it up. He's not a martyr, but he's the once for all Passover lamb. So the crowds have this altogether different reason for being there and celebrating Jesus. They're ready to crown him king of Israel. And so Jesus is riding into this perfect storm. He's intentionally riding into this perfect storm. Look at verse 13 and 14. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Why? Just as it was written. And we'll look at that, the rest of that verse in a second. Jesus actually here encourages this reception. He encourages them receiving him as a king. Because Jesus knows the prophecy. He knows what, the, as the next verse quotes from Zechariah 9, 9, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. So Jesus is, is clearly communicating to the zealous crowd on this Passover as all these pilgrims from all over the place have descended upon Jerusalem. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that Israel's future king would come riding on a donkey. He would come riding on a donkey. Some of you may remember in 1991, there was the makings of a perfect storm in the north in fact, there was a movie and a book called The Perfect Storm as a result of this. And it was actually a, a weakened hurricane of all names. The, the hurricane's name, anybody remember what the hurricane name was? Grace. The, the hurricane's name was Grace. Nobody really remembers that. But it was weakening. It was almost ready to die out. But you had this northeaster that collided with it on 
at this high altitude and all this cold air and this hot air and this pressure just joined together and it created this perfect storm that happened. Well, all these factors in Jesus' day are coming together and him riding on this horse, on this donkey, I'm sorry, the colt, was to encourage this perfect storm. So you had three things here. You had Jesus, he has power over death, all right? This guy is unique. He's special. Among all the people who have come before him, all the rabbis and the teachers and those claiming to be messiahs, he has power over death. And then he's fulfilling these messianic expectations by riding in on this donkey, and the crowd expected this warrior king to come and defeat Rome. So a perfect storm. Why is this a perfect storm? An event of this nature, it would either have to revolt, lead to a revolt against the hated Roman Empire who was, it was controlling the nation, controlling the world at this point. They were powerful and they were occupying Israel. And so it was either going to lead to a revolt against them or the execution of the leader who's stirring up this and trying to cause the revolt to happen. So by all appearances from the Romans, winning would be putting Jesus to death, right? So Jesus' actions are undeniable. He had crossed the point of no return. For Jesus, he knew that this, these events would set his brutal death into motion. He knew that that would happen. And so you had the Sanhedrin, and that was basically would be like the Jewish Supreme Court. And other Jewish leaders wanted him dead. But here's the thing. They didn't want him to die on the Passover week. They didn't want this. They see the crowds. They look around. This is not really the best timing for it. But here's the fourth element and the most important thing when it comes to the factor that contributes to this perfect storm. It's that the perfect God who had a perfect will and his sovereign will was this was the time for Jesus' crucifixion to happen. This was the time for the ultimate Passover lamb to be sacrificed. Jesus, so he enters Jerusalem on his own time and he forces the issue so that his death would happen exactly on the day where the Israelites were going to get the lambs without blemish and bring them into their homes. And Jesus would be crucified on Passover as the once for all Passover lamb. So Jesus forces the issue. He forces the timetable because all along as we've seen throughout this gospel, Jesus is always on the same page as his father. He says, I only wanna do what the father wants me to do. And now's the time for Jesus to go. And Jesus follows the will of the Father. And the people, they're passionate. They're shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Or, or even, I beg you to save us. All right, They're crying out for Jesus to save them. But this cry for saving is definitely political much more than it is spiritual. And the crowd shouts, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is a quote from Psalm 118, 26, where the statement is intended to bless or to praise the one coming to save the people. And then make no mistake, verse 13, they're taking palm branches and they went out to meet him. This would be basically our equivalent of uh, flag waving, that people would be coming out to their political leader who was going to provide a military victory and waving the flag uh, and cheering the leader on because of their anticipated victory over a foreign enemy. And then the crowd statement, it can't be taken any other way other than the fact that, look, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, even the king of Israel. So for three years now, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. And Jesus, now he proves that he's the one who can raise the dead. And there are multiple witnesses to this. Lazarus is walking around. People can see him. And so the people have nothing to fear. And so the crowds, to them, the Messiah, this long-promised Messiah who God would send to set up his kingdom and destroy these Gentiles who are in their land and corrupting their land and run them out of the land and restore them to the days of David and Solomon. That is what the expectation here is. But don't you find that it's the case oftentimes for your life as well as in this text that God rarely does things the way that we think he should do them? God rarely does things the way that we think he should do them. Back when I was a kid before the internet, I loved to collect every year the Guinness Book of World Records, right? I loved to be able to look through and know who was the best, the fastest, the smartest, the strongest, the tallest, the richest. I mean, you name it, it was there. Why? Because we, as humans, in our world, we like to keep score. We love sports, we love games, and the media we know promotes who's up, who's down, who's hot, who's not. And in Jesus' time, the same fleshly, worldly attitude existed even among Jesus' disciples. Why? Well, how do I know that? Because the sons of Zebedee, James and John, their mom had the audacity to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you set up this kingdom that you're bringing in, is it okay if like, my one son is on one side of you and my other son's on the other side of you? It was about winning and losing. The disciples thought that this king would come in and he would set up this kingdom. And these guys who were discipled by Jesus for three years did not expect the king to suffer and die. In fact, you may have forgotten this, but Luke's account of the Last Supper, they're also arguing there about who's the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus is like, I'm getting ready to die, guys. And they're like, who's going to be the greatest? All right, they just don't get it because God rarely does things the way that we think he should do. Look at verse 16. This, it's clear. The disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, after he rose again, was given his glorified body, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. So it was there all along. This was no surprise. It was revealed in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, and had done, been done to him. And so all these things had been written about him. And this death that was about to happen to him was, was written. It was prophesied. So after years here of Jesus avoiding his kingship, never came out and said, guys, I'm the Messiah, now he comes into Jerusalem and he receives this acclaim of a king. He receives this prominence, this welcome as a king. But as correct as the crowds are in regarding his identity as the true king, they were still under, unable to see his true nature of his kingship. It was only after Jesus died and rose again that his disciples understood the true nature of it, the true meaning of what had happened. I love what Edward Klink writes, he says, at that moment, Jesus coming in, it was only Jesus who knew what kind of king he truly was and kind of kingly duty he had to fulfill and how inappropriately 
low were the kingly hopes and expectations of these people, including his disciples. So God rarely does things the way that we think he should do them. And our expectations of God are inappropriately low. And the gospel is the perfect illustration of this. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25, Paul writes, We preach Christ crucified as a stumbling block to the Jews and as folly to the Gentiles. But to those of us who are called both Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So King Jesus being crucified was a problem for the Jews. Not expected. And it seemed ridiculous to the Gentiles. But it was God's plan to redeem his people for himself. Look back up in your text. It'll be on the screen to verse 10 and 11. Back after raising Lazarus. The chief priest, this is the, the, the key Sanhedrin guy. He's, he's the religious leader of the day. He made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. He wanted Lazarus off the scene because of account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so when you look at this text, when you look at this passage, it seems like things are out of control. From a human standpoint and what's going to transpire in the next days, it's going to seem like that God is completely out of control. It's going to seem folly to the Romans, a king, the king of the Jews dying on a cross. It's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be an issue, a problem to the Jewish people. Our king is not supposed to die at the hands of the Romans. This is silly. It appears like that everything is out of control. The Jewish leaders plotting to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus, who's walking evidence of Jesus' power over death in the grave. And Jesus, he enters Jerusalem with this massive reception, honoring him as king of Israel and his Passover time. So the religious leaders, this is not the best time to put him to death. And so the Pharisees, they're in the condition, they're in the situation here where they're literally wringing their hands. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. All this work, all this strategy, we're getting nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What are we going to do? The world has gone after him. And what's interestingly enough here, we've seen this three times. This is our third time so far. We saw Caiaphas, the high priest, who inadvertently prophesied about Jesus' sacrificial death. You had Mary anointing Jesus, <clears throat> even though she didn't know that he was going to die, but she anointed him for his burial, but now we have the Pharisees prophesying without knowing it, saying that Jesus, obviously hyperbole on their part, the world's going after them. It feels like the world's going after him, but Jesus is the savior of the world, right? And so all these things are going on in this text. But the most important factor is God is in control. So I want us to remember this before we finish out this passage, God rarely does things the way that we think he should. All right, so think about your own situation, circumstances. Think about your own life, your marriage, your kids, your situation, your circumstances that you're going through right this moment. Are your expectations of what God's able to do, 
are they inappropriately low? Honestly, do you trust that God's in control even when it appears like things are completely out of control? You see, the people were right in receiving Jesus. They were simply wrong in what they expected from him and his kingdom. They wanted a political solution, and Jesus had something completely different in mind. He had the will of God, the will of God in mind. What about you? Honestly, it's a great time to kind of make this application, right? As was mentioned, Tuesday, it's election day. How much effort and time do you spend in your own mind and in your conversations and your social media on worrying and wondering and fretting and getting excited over the political answers to things versus the spiritual answers to things? You see, Jesus was bringing in a kingdom that no one expected. And that's, he didn't put that mission on hold. And he's not thrown for a loop when things don't go our way. Now, absolutely, totally, 100%, go and vote, okay? You should definitely go. That's what we've been given in this democracy to speak and make a difference. But at the end of the day, we know that God is in control. And he's more concerned about his kingdom than our political party. He is. He's more concerned about the guy's soul that you debate with all day about politics than he is about what happens in the voting box on Tuesday. And we have to remind ourselves again and again, because last week we talked about Satan and his strategy. His strategy is to get us to focus on important things and good things, but not the best things and the main thing. And we take our eyes off Jesus and his kingdom, and we put them on other things that we think these messiahs are going to bring in the solutions that are going to solve our problems, but give it two more years or four more years, and we're back in the same situation we were before. And I'm not making light. Your vote and my vote, I've already voted, did early voting. It makes a difference. It's important to get people into office who allow us to meet here and do what we do and to live out the word of God in a way that's not persecuted and in a way that we can freely live for Jesus and make him known and preach our moral convictions and what the Bible says is sin and not sin. Look, that may not be forever, but maybe for the next few years we can do that. Maybe I can continue to preach what the scripture says without being arrested or taken and, and removed from social media or some other thing because I'm preaching what God says. So vote. It matters. But focus on Jesus and his kingship and the spiritual kingdom that he's bringing in. And he's a king, but he's a king like no one was expecting. And regardless of in your lifetime, beyond these next, maybe you're really hopeful for the next couple of years, right? Regardless of what happens, and it seems like, whoa, it's a perfect storm. Everything's going wrong. Everything's going upside down. It's going backwards. God's in control. And he's working for his glory. And we have to remember when we're tempted to just take a little bit of Jesus and sprinkle it on our ambitions and our desires, that Jesus doesn't work on our agendas according to our plans. Most of the time, God's doing things in a way that we don't expect. And so be careful. Like, Jesus, I really want you to 
Help me make an A on this test that I didn't study for, right, students? Sprinkle some Jesus, I pray. Jesus, we need some traveling mercies. We need that hedge of protection around us, Jesus. But what are we doing? Are we, are we praying for his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or are we really just asking Jesus to sanctify our kingdom of one so we can win? So we can be victorious and prosperous? What's the agenda here? Let's make sure we understand Jesus was a king. And he was a king going to a cross. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to go to the cross as well. For salvation, salvation is found in none other. Know their name. It's given among men how we can be saved. Only Jesus. And salvation is found at a cross. Jesus died, the ultimate Passover lamb. He took my place. I deserve to die. He died in my place. He covers my sin and gives me his righteousness. And so if you want to follow Jesus, salvation, but also Jesus said, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. That would be equivalent to us saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. It was the Romans' way of executing people they wanted rid of. And as I said earlier, they were good at it. And Jesus says, take up your cross too, and you follow me. And then our hands application today is about as touching and, and, and taking part of it as possibly can. And this is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. And let me remind you again what Luke said in his account. When Jesus had shared with them what was going to happen to him, verse 24 said, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. Most of us secretly, we want to be better known, better valued, more appreciated than we currently are. Here's what I'm asking you to do today during the Lord's Supper time. I'm asking you to, to, to truly, literally pray, just the fresh wind of God to blow over your personal aspirations. The things that you dream about, scheme about, fantasize about, hope for, the things you talk about in your family, in your marriage, in your home, allow God's wind to blow through those aspirations. And help, ask God to help you see through the, now that, the, that Jesus is glorified and you have the Holy Spirit and all this makes sense to those who are in Christ. The Spirit gives us understanding that through that, we can live our lives in a different way. That it's not just Jesus come over here and help me succeed and win and have more success. But Jesus, I'm joining you. And that means going to a cross. That means taking my cross and going with you, Jesus.